There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. I swear it's like what Google does. After you utter the word Tuggy Sandbox, suddenly there are just Tuggy Sandboxes everywhere you look. He was all decked out. He had his LL Bean and his fanny pack and his vest and his hat on. I don't know if he fished all the time and he was just like a wacko coop or like he was all about it. What action would you take if one of your paying rods, let us say a wealthy, well-to-do lady, had a little too much to drink and told you to f*** off? We'll catch a whole bunch of blues, we'll put them in burlap sacks, throw them in the car, make ceviche the next day. Good morning, Degenerate Anglers. Welcome to Bent, maybe the only podcast that can tell you the taxonomic and rigging differences between waxworms, mealworms, bloodworms, tapeworms, ringworms, Canadian worms, San Juan worms, and squirmy worms. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and I'll take a dozen extra-large Canadian crawlers and a worm blower, please. Oh, a worm blower. Yes. Wow, you don't hear that much. You mean no. you, you are talking about those those little air needles you use to puff up your worms? Yes. That is, that is exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, a for those of you who don't know, it's a, it's a little plastic bottle with what I can only describe as a body-piercing needle sticking out of the cap. <laughs> and you stick that needle into the into your nightcrawler and give, give the bottle a little squeeze, and voila— Mm-hmm. You got yourself a floating worm. Put that mm-hmm. bad boy on a, a slip sinker or a Lindy rig, and it'll ride just up off the bottom where the fish can find it easier. Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone in the boat needs uh, like a, a septum piercing or a tongue ring, you just give it a good sterilizing, you know, pour a little hooch <laughs> over it, crank up some nine inch nails, and just pop it right through. That's what you do. Oh, that uh, <laughs> you made me physically cringe in my seat right Good. there because yeah. I this is true when I was 16 years old I had my septum pierced and oh and you did it I did for 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 everyone who failed anatomy and physiology the septum is that middle flap between your nostrils like it's the bull ring and I do not recommend letting the clerk at the dark side across the street from Alamoana Mall jam a large gauge needle through there it hurts. And and also it won't make you look as cool as you hoped or help you get dates. Doesn't didn't work like that for me in the nineties anyway. Wow. Wow, man. I had no idea whenever I think I had no idea. Yes. And then whenever I think of septum piercings, what is the I forget which Chris Farley movie it is. Doesn't he rip one out of the dudes? Or no, that's out of the nipples. He rips it out of the nipples yeah. in a bar yeah. scene. I, did, I never had the um, nipple ring. I, that was the only piercing I ever did. It was a bad idea. I, I would never see did you again. more more as a nipple ring guy in your younger <laughs> days than septum, if I'm being completely honest with you. I, you know, uh, it but, was I just it was a it was a split second decision and I regretted it almost immediately. Wow. Yeah, I so I, I had my ear pierced and I wore hoops, uh, like thicker gauge hoops for 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 too long. I wore them, and it was like not long after my daughter was born. I was like, you know what? It's been it's been long enough. I don't like I don't even know if this is in style anymore. Like none of my friends who had ears pierced like were still wearing their stuff. Um, but I I never had any desire to pierce anything else or like gauge my ears or, yeah. or any of that. 
Yeah. But this do, this does take me back to to younger days and like time spent. I'm thinking about Hot Topic, the Piercing Pagoda, yes, South Street in Philly. Yes. You know, like, I, and I'll tell you what, the whole nostalgia vibe you're setting up also makes me think of the new Lunchbug soft plastic crawfish. It does. Does fishing. it? It, it does. Okay. It does. And, Elaborate. And, uh, allow me to quote from the 13 Fishing website, who sponsors the show, by the way, our good friends there. Um, bringing the lunch bug is like being the kid whose mom packed them a lunchable and a snack pack. Ooh. These appendages slap harder than the Capri Sun. Uh, also included is donkey sauce in order to leave the lingering taste in the fish's mouth long after you've gone off to recess. Uh, also, it, it comes pre-engineered to float, so you don't need to hit it with the worm blower to keep it riding up off the bottom. That's, uh, I don't know who writes the copy for the Me 13 either. website. But they should I feel work like for they us. Should they should work for us here at Bent. <laughs> and you can say, you can say what you want about the worm blower, man. It is legit. I was reminded of its power last summer fishing on a finicky bite. We were in a Red Lake, Minnesota, and one of the mm-hmm. locals like pulled out the old school worm blower as his secret weapon. When the yeah. we like the, the the freshwater drum and the walleye both were totally snubbing the floating jig heads, so he pulled that bad boy out, and it's it's a little barbaric, but it's highly effective. Yeah, and I'm not knocking the worm blower uh, by any stretch. I just feel like that's a piece of kit once again that just doesn't seem very prevalent in the Northeast fishing culture where I grew up. Like I know in other places in the Midwest and stuff. Yeah. Um, but um, you did in the beginning of this, I think, have something you were trying to tee up as like a as like a throwback talk. I did. We've gotten away from that. I did. What is that? I, you're, you're distracting me with all this state of the art <laughs> thirteen fishing gear. I, I just Sorry. got off topic. Yes, yeah. we were going throwback worm blowers, bad piercings, nine inch nails, and a certain Spotify playlist. If you haven't checked out the bent playlist on Spotify, uh, we recommend you do so. My cousin Nick Yi, shout out to Nick, was so inspired by the Bent playlist, that he made his own competing playlist. Mm-hmm. And and you got to know, mm-hmm. Nick is a, is, a, is a badass DJ in Hawaii. And he, he created this fantastic radio show called Bridging the Gap, which you should definitely check out. But in his spare time, he also created the Bent versus Bridging playlist. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, Nick, but I want to now. Because you, you like do. Gauntlet, Gauntlet Throne. Um and I got to say, this is a damn good collection of music. Right? You know? It's yes. really good. What, the thing is, the, the reason I, I feel like we have to talk about it is because when I looked at that playlist, I immediately thought, damn, how did I forget about that song? Yes. He's got yep. something about a waitress by the Ziggins. He's got Happy Boy by the Beat Farmers. He's got Voodoo Glow Skulls. That makes us hot. Yep. I, I find myself listening to it often. It's a great mix. Props to Nick for he has Cold Beverage by G Love and the Special yes. Sauce. That's a Philly band. That's like hometown pride. G Love right there, and Summer Lovin' from Greece as covered by the Vandals. Which Bravo. if you have not heard that, it's not just Bravo. a standard cover. It's a no. rewrite. No, it's raunchy. They've yeah. they've reworked some lyrics. Yes. Um, but I, I will say, man, like while while his playlist might be tighter than ours, is it better? I don't know. And uh, we think um, you all should decide. Okay. So look up the Bent verse bridging playlist on Spotify um, and let us know if you think it's better than the Bent playlist. We'll also, we'll throw some links up on our Instagrams too, so you guys can find it easier. But our playlist, it really continues to grow and evolve. In fact, our first guest today, Mr. Brad Leone, our buddy, um, he actually added a few tracks to the Bent Mix. And lately, we've been asking select guests to contribute a few jams. And Brad added, get this, Ghoul's Night Out by the Misfits. Because mm. it turns out he's a huge Misfits fan, which means I like him even more. He also went to school with bass player Jerry Only's Kids and was backstage at the reunion show in Newark, New Jersey a few years ago while I was in the nosebleeds for $200 a ticket. So, like, I was like, yeah, of course you were. He's like, wah, backstage, wah. bro. I'm like, yeah, of course you were. Um, he also he also dropped uh, Cool Water, and he wanted it by the old-school country singer Marty Robbins, okay? And while I appreciate that choice very much, I hope he doesn't mind. I'm going to take a little liberty with that pick, and I'm just going to switch it to the Hank Williams Sr. version of Cool Water, Mm. because that one, it's much more sad and depressing. And while I'm not a country music guy, Hank Williams Sr. was like a badass mother 
Like he was pure yes. punk rock, Truth. and I am a huge fan. I might even add more Hank. Anyway, Brad and I are going to get all nostalgic about Bluefish Party Boats in this week's Smooth Moves. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh my God. So uh, today with us on Smooth Moves, we got a familiar voice, chef, angler, friend of the show, Brad Leone. Welcome back, sir. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. Yeah. So, all right. This is this is a little out of your normal element. We're, we're messing up the segment a little bit. Like normally what we do here is we get a, a guide or a charter captain or a shop rat or somebody to tell a story about a client doing something stupid. But in talking to Joe, we are all for showcasing the, the diverse menagerie of entertaining stupidity that just happens to blossom on fishing trips. Like we're, we're opening it up. So even though you're not a guide or a charter captain, uh, you do still have a good story to tell us. So, so what's your smooth move? Yeah. So smooth move, you know, I, I, I haven't done many like big charter outfits, like personal ones or anything like that, but like growing up, you know, we went out on party boats, a bunch chasing striped bass and, you know, that's, you're paying to go out on someone's boat. So I think that that puts us in the, in the category of qualification here. Absolutely. And oh, I'm yeah. excited because like some of the most crazy shit I've ever seen in my life has been on a party boat. It's a party yeah, boat. Yeah. I could write a book about it. So there is, absolutely, man. It's, it's, you're hundred percent right. They're incredible. And uh, we were going out and like, hopefully if anything, at the end of the day, for someone who is not familiar with the fish I'm about to talk about or a party boat or anything for that matter, we can all learn something here. So we were going out this one day. I was young. You know, I was going out with my dad out of New Jersey, out of uh, um, what the hell is that in where the Nighthawks at? Is that um, Belmar? Yeah, it's Belmar, right? Shark River. Anyway, yeah. Oh yeah, going out of New Jersey there on the party boat, and uh, you know the one guy next to me, you know, strangers. You know, there's one guy next to me. He was all all decked out. He had his LL Bean and his in his uh, you know his fanny pack and his vest and his hat on. <laughs> And he, he had, had like, wait, you know, he had a trout vest on on a party boat. Like he, he was ready. Tight, <laughs> this dude was like ready to go. Like he was probably like, <laughs> I don't know if he fished all the time and he was just like a wacko kook, or like this was just like his first time and he was all about it. Could have went nice you wear. Yeah, you wear it's what you wear. You go fishing, you wear the vest. That's what everybody knows that. You know, he was ready. He had his rags and his little toenail clippers, and like he was ready to do <laughs> shit. You know, and like, and that's great. And like, so whatever. So we're fishing. We're going out for striped bass. You know, a half day boat or something. And uh, before you know, we're you know we're throwing diamond jigs. And before you know, we're getting into these bluefish and like pretty good sized bluefish, 12, 14 pounders, some nice ones. You know, 10, 10 pounders, whatever. And I'll never forget this. You know, my dad. You know, my dad always taught me. But this guy, he's fighting this fish. You know, a big shit eating grin. And he gets this thing up on the deck, you know, and uh, he goes and picks it up with, you know, thumbs it like a bass. Mm. And he just, all of a sudden, oh. he was just like, ah. Mm. He, there was just blood. He's ragging. There's all these little cute little gear he had was just covered in his own blood. <laughs> and uh, and then the whole trip, he just like, he, he was just wrapped up in the paper towels and tape or something. And he sat in the cabin. But uh, point of the story being you know, those, those yellow eyed demons, they got some razor teeth and you can't just go, you can't just go shoving your fingers in any kind of fish's mouth. <laughs> so that's a great tip. But also it now, is. now that I know the story, I'm going to guess that the vest and all that shit was a sign of, 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 of not knowing what he was doing. Yeah. He was not a veteran. It probably was his first time, but man, dude, I have seen, you only make that mistake once. And I have seen so many people do that over the years. And what people don't know is those fish. I don't know if you know this, they actually have an, an anticoagulant in their saliva. So like, if really? you get bit, Oh yeah, dude, if you get, if you get nipped by a bluefish and they will like take the, they will take the tip of your thumb off. You won't even feel it right away. Like they, their teeth are so razor sharp, but then it bleeds forever and ever. Yeah. And like ever. his friends get a scent to the blood in the yeah, water. Exactly. That's what they do. Like man. piranha, like piranha Komodo dragons. They're also the only fish that will eat till they're stuffed and then vomit and keep eating. That's also true. About that's a real thing about. that bluefish do. But I've seen the, them just spit stuff up on the deck and <laughs> napping at still chomping. I, I love them. One of my favorite fish. Oh, dude, they're they're a blast, and we don't have time to get into it. But like, I miss those days when we were kids of going out nighttime bluefishing. There's not that many around anymore. Those nighttime bluefish yeah. trips don't run. But man, like the amount of gaffs I've seen go through hands and fingers torn up on lines <laughs> on those old bluefish boats, I miss it. Like, I hope that swings back around for my kids because it's it's such an experience and I miss it a lot. But uh, cheers to the party boat and ocean health, man. Yeah, man, we should all get together on a party boat at some point down the line. Oh my God. I would love to do that. Miles, you're going to have to fly out. We'll go out in the party boat. 
right? He's maybe already we'll been bring here. A camera. Maybe we won't. <laughs> you do not need to convince me about this. I was I was out fishing with Joe last month. It was a blast. I will go do that again any day. And the party I've heard so much about the party boat scene. I feel like I just have to experience it for myself because yeah. they the blow crazy the horn shit. and then people start yeah. freaking flinging them. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the Hold your rod out straight. Move your rod. Move down. Fish, dude, it's nuts. We'll coming catch a down, whole bunch. Fish on, coming down the line, you're walking down, fishing over and under people's rods. It's ridiculous. We'll catch a whole bunch of blues. We'll put them in burlap sacks, throw them in the car, make ceviche the next Kick day. Kick them around, yeah. <laughs> this is a lot of fun, boys. I may not know shit about bluefish. I, I don't. I've never caught one. But even I know you you don't lip a bluefish. <laughs> like, that's a terrible idea. Yeah, but I, didn't you also ask me if you should lip a bowfin when we fished for those? Am I remembering that right? That happened. I did that. I did. <laughs> In my defense, if you look at a bowfin, their teeth are not nearly as obvious. Like, if you, you look at a bluefish and you just see teeth. Mm-hmm. Bowfin, it's 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 more subtle. They're it's, tucked it's behind the hidden. gums. They like yeah, pop out and hit you. Exactly. Yeah. So I I will admit that wasn't my my smartest moment. I will defend it, but admit that it was <laughs> kind of a stupid thing to say. Yeah. Well, hopefully you're feeling a little smarter than that today because you are going to need all the wits you got to compete against me in fish news. Fish news. That escalated quickly. We've got a little bit of exciting housekeeping before we get rolling into news this week. Meat Eater's new audiobook, all right, Campfire Stories Close Calls, recently dropped. And this is this is a pretty cool project uh, that anyone that listens to any of the Meat Eater podcasts or just really kind of like appreciates a, a great story, I think will really dig. You'll yeah. really enjoy this. We obviously like the the auditory format of storytelling. We, we do yes. a lot of it. We think it's powerful. And the theme of this audiobook, and it's only an audiobook, you can't get a hard copy. The theme is close calls. So all 16 of the stories are true tales of survival, grit, and maybe a little misfortune mm -hmm. in the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And there are a few very hairy fishing related stories in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. I, we got the hunting and the survival stories, of course, it's meteor, but the fishing makes an appearance here. It, it pops yep. up. One example my good buddy Thad Robinson of Geobass fame tells a story where he was fishing and filming on a remote river in Colombia, and uh, he and his, his crew were hammering giant fish. Like, they got in there and just started hammering giant fish. And all of a sudden, the local cocaine cartel shows up, and, mm -hmm. and things get real interesting from there. Yeah, and on, like on a personal note, I remember seeing they, they touch on that in Geobass, if I remember correctly, but then hearing it this way, you get the backstory that you didn't get if you saw that. Like it goes, it, it goes deeper. You know, I got I mean? the backstory at a bar years right. ago, and so I'm glad that it is now immortalized uh, on. Yes, tape. yes, and there's also, I'll just add, there's a ripper of a story from our own colleague uh, Brody Henderson about his guiding days when he saved a four year old kid that was trapped under a boat, mm. and man, like, it, dude, it gets the pulse up. Like, I'd, I'd almost mm -hmm. call that the most haunting story in the collection, but we don't want to give too many details away, right? We don't want to spoil it. We don't want to nope. be spoilers. No, no spoilers. You know? No spoilers. You can find Campfire Stories in the Meteor Store. We think you should check it out. It'll give you something cool and, and very well polished to listen to on Fridays after listening to our nerdy, <laughs> less cool, perhaps less polished ramblings here on oh. Bent. Oh, I do. I think our audio engineer Phil would argue with the unpolished part no, of that no, statement. No, 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 not like no, that. But, but uh, Phil, don't worry. Not like that. But we're not talking about the audio quality. No, just the content. Okay, you <laughs> no, polish you. these turds. It's you us. polish these turds through a high mirror shine on a weekly basis. <laughs> you do. Um, Phil, Phil also declares a news winner every week because remember this is a competition. Miles and I do not know which news stories the other guy is bringing to the table, and it is your leadoff this week, my friend. All right, I'm going to lead with my big story and then go into my less big, stupider story. We talk a lot about red tides and fish kills in Florida, and there's a good reason why we keep hitting that topic and why it keeps coming up. Water mismanagement in Florida is steadily decimating some of this country's greatest fishing. And you can say what you will about Florida. God knows we have made our fair share of Florida men and salt life jokes, right? Yes. But I will admit publicly that there's a strong case to be made that Florida is the greatest fishing state in the nation. Agreed. It really is. Yep. Yep. Problem is, we're ruining it. 
And to get a better understanding of the history and impacts of freshwater mismanagement in Florida, I, I really recommend that you read an article on the meateater.com by our good friend, Sam Lundgren. It's called Florida Water Crisis. Is New Leadership Finally Turning the Tide? That article came out a few years ago, so the takeaways are a little dated. But Sam does a great job of contextualizing how and why we got to the situation we're in now, where every couple years, red tides bloom on one or both coasts of Florida and millions of fish die, which is happening right now. Yeah. And the, the primary reason for the unnaturally large red tides and consistent fish kills has to do with how we've changed the way freshwater moves through the state of Florida. Historically, Central Florida's annual deluges of rain slowly snaked through the Kissimmee River, filled up Lake Okeechobee, the eighth largest natural lake in the country, and, and drifted and filtered south through the massive marsh system that once covered basically all of South Florida, which we call the Everglades, before finally winding up in Florida Bay. Through the 20th century, we've changed the hydrology of that area to allow people and agriculture to exist in those South Florida swamps and marshes. As Sam describes in the article, we did this by, quote, controlling Lake O's size and temperament by redirecting much of the water that used to flow down through the glades west out the Caloosahatchee River to Pine Island Sound and east out the St. Lucie River to the Indian River Lagoon. The natural flow southward through the Everglades into Florida Bay was largely blocked to protect growing communities and infrastructure and to promote sugarcane agriculture to the southeast of the lake. At the time, the project was nothing short of miraculous. Enterprising and brilliant Americans had tamed a volatile inland sea and transformed a wasteland of treacherous swamp into an oasis of habitable and highly arable land. The Everglades, starved of fresh water, have been shrinking and dying ever since. About half of the original glades are now urban or agricultural areas. Much of the rest is drying up or suffering saltwater incursion. Pine Island Sound and the Indian River Lagoon are experiencing the opposite problem. Too much fresh water in the form of billions of gallons of nutrient-laden water diverted from the lake to the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico. That's a very simplified version of what's going on. I, I, mm -hmm. I recommend you read the bigger picture, but that gives you some sense of what I'm talking about. We know the problem. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And for years, anglers, conservationists, and dedicated groups like Captains for Clean Water and Friends of the Everglades have lobbied and fought for water management to consider the impacts on fish and fisheries. After two years of meetings, modeling, debates, and heated discussions, the Army Corps of Engineers just recently put forth a recommended Lake Okeechobee Systems Operating Manual that would help dictate Ooh. what happens to the lake's water. The Ooh, draft. That's big. Yeah. This is, this is big news. I kind of buried yeah. the lead here, but this is big news. The draft, which has a weird title, it's titled Plan CC, would more than triple the quantity of water flowing south through the Everglades into Florida Bay and cut discharges into the St. Lucie estuary by about two-thirds. These changes could yield significant positive impacts for the southern and eastern coasts of Florida. But the plan, as it's currently written, fails to address water discharge issues out of the Caloosahatchee River on Florida's west coast. Captains for Clean Water, a group of anglers in Florida who have been fighting to protect fisheries for years and Full transparency, it's run by a couple of guys who I consider friends. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I genuinely think they're doing great work, but I'm also buddies with them, so keep that in mind. They put out the following statement. Plan CC provides a good starting point, but needs significant modifications in order to provide the most benefit to all stakeholders. Making these modifications will decrease the likelihood of toxic discharges to the St. Lucie and Caloosahatchee estuaries, ensure drinking water supply for millions of Floridians, provide dry season hydration to the Everglades, and help to mitigate hypersalinity in Florida Bay. The Corps is planning to spend the next month on a, quote, listening tour to get feedback on the proposed plan before finalizing the decision in August. And so now, right now, this moment is the time to get involved. So many people, so many people have done huge amounts of work to arrive where we are at this exact moment, the next 10 years of water management in Florida will be decided by yep. this plan. 
And it's going to be a make or break thing. Yeah. This is, I cannot stress this enough. This is a big deal. And all I'm asking you to do is send an email and, and grab a pen because you're, you're, you're going to need to write this address down. You're not going to remember this, this email address. I will also put it in my Instagram, even though I'm terrible about that. And to get you <laughs> a little carrot to get you to, to check it out, I will put it in a post that includes a very embarrassing photo of me with a solid mullet holding a tarpon in Florida. So you can look forward to that. Anyway. Oh, and I'll repost that then. I'm in too. <laughs> Please write an email to Okeechobee, that's O-K-E-E-C-H-O-B-E-E, watershed restoration at U-S-A-C-E dot army dot M-I-L. Oh, they got to shorten that up. You, you got we that? Need a, we need, Has everybody got they, that? They need a bit.ly link in there, man. Something. <laughs> they, no, you didn't. I know you didn't get that. That's okay. You can check out my IG. You can check out Joe's IG. And if you're feeling overwhelmed by this, there's an easier, though somewhat less impactful thing you can do. You can go to the Captains for Clean Water website, and they have this, this very straightforward form letter that's like a call to action that they will help you send if you want to go that route. Um, that, that would simplify it. It might not be as impactful, but you could do that route as well. I just got to say, this is one of those rare moments when we can actually have a positive influence on our fisheries and, and it really will not take more than 10 minutes of your time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, like for as much trouble as Florida is having, there's so many conservation issues out there where like it takes so long just to pinpoint the root of the problem. And even though it's not really as simple as I'm going to make it sound, this is one where it's like, there's kind of sort of a, a switch we can flip to stop all this. You know what I mean? Like we know exactly what the issue is. And certainly there's just un- incredible politics and and so much yeah. involved in that. But it's a very identifiable problem. So We know what's going wrong. We, we know the problem. Yeah. And we yeah. actually, there, this is a moment where there's movement to change the way that that water is utilized and managed. And it, it's crucially important that we get this right. Well, I'll tell you what, man. Um, I, like you said, the next 10 years are going to be so critical in mm-hmm. this fight. Like if it doesn't flip within the next 10 years, maybe even sooner, like it will, I, it, it, it's going to get to a point of no repair. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I was really happy to see this news pop up and I, I, very much hope that the outcome of this is one that that benefits the fish and the fisheries in Florida and the anglers, all of us who want to go fish there because it's pretty yeah. amazing. Even yeah. if I make well, fun of Florida. So Miles has just enriched us and 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 given us a call to action to do something great. I'm going to do no such thing with this story other than to say, hopefully within the next 10 years, the glades are good because maybe within those 10 years, my son will be selling his first boat for a bigger boat that maybe he could run down there in Florida in the in the 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 newly rejuvenated Everglades. I don't know. That was a dumb transition. Ten, ten I, years? You, you're, yeah. You're well, be selling oh, a boat in ten years? You, you'll understand in a minute, okay? Because okay. uh, I've been pretty bombarded about my first little story, and I appreciate everyone sending it along. I actually saw it as a Facebook post before it became real news, which it it I use real lightly, but this is this is just so fantastic, okay? Uh, this is from uh, wishtv.com out of Indiana. Headline, Tiny Tugboat Takes Lake Monroe by Storm. And yes, the tiny tugboat in question is a tuggy sandbox. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Like the same one that you have in your backyard? Yes. Your son, the one that you got off of the Craigslist <laughs> ad with the, the woman that didn't speak any English? That one? Yeah, she just pointed at shit. Same one. <laughs> and what I was going to say, it, it like... The Tuggy seems to have inadvertently become like the official boat of the Bent podcast ever since we brought it up in that sail bin segment mm. a while back. Because in that segment, I noted that the, the, the Tuggy is no longer made. It's been out of production for a while, making it a hot commodity already. And now I believe this podcast has driven the price higher, right? <laughs> like I posted a shot on Instagram from a listener of an abandoned Tuggy flipped over in a trout stream. And people were like, I hope he took that. I'd have packed that thing out like an elk, right? So needless to say... <laughs> I've gotten just all manner of tuggy photos since then. But now here comes this story. And I swear it's like it's like what Google does. Like after you utter the word tuggy sandbox, suddenly there are just tuggy sandboxes everywhere you look. That's how I feel like it's been mm-hmm. since that sale bin. Anyway, from the story, a Facebook post 
by the Indiana Department of Natural Resources drew plenty of attention over the weekend. In the post, DNR officers on Lake Monroe appear to be ticketing a man in a tiny tugboat. That's not exactly what happened, though. So everyone who sent this to me, right, because in the picture you see tattoo dude in a tuggy and like off the side of the frame is an arm coming out with a citation, right? Wait, 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 so hold, everyone, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me ask a couple questions. I need, I need to yeah. see this in my head. Is, is he floating on a body of water in yes. the tuggy sandbox? He's floating in the tuggy sandbox. There is an electric trolling motor on the sandbox and it looks like the dnr boat is sidled up next to him and all you see is a dnr officer's arm coming out of the side of the frame handing him paperwork okay continue okay so everyone who sent this claimed to me that he was getting ticketed because his tuggy wasn't registered tuggy didn't have numbers (laughs) okay which made sense in my head because i'm thinking like if you're the kind of person that's, you know, going to uh, turn a tuggy into an actual usable vessel, you might not be too concerned about numbers, okay? But he does also have a trolling motor, like I said. Uh, but that's, that's, that's inaccurate. The DNR replied to their post and explained the encounter in more detail. They said, to answer the question if he was receiving a ticket, no, the boat is registered. Yes. And I was handing him his registration paperwork back. He was totally legal and a fun guy to chat with. So that's what DNR wrote. This is so much, the story is so much better. Yeah. So I was like, damn, dude registered his tuggy. Like, that's exceptional. So who is this tuggy pirate? Well, it's Kentucky native Nick Riley, of course. And while I wish there was more detail, because there isn't, Nick has apparently restored and made many tuggies seaworthy. What? Like, this is a thing he does often in his spare time. And in we the need story, to get this man on the show. Oh, I'm getting there. Okay. Okay. In the story, he said, we have cup holders. We have boat cleats so we can tie up to other boats. We recently just put a Bluetooth speaker in one. I didn't bring that one with me, but you can have tunes while you're driving your boat. <laughs> so listen, like this dude is like the so American he's just, rest. He's, he's like pimping out tuggies. It's not a stunt. There were like several photos he provided of his home where there's like, you know how car guys have like five cars in the driveway? Dude's yeah. got like all different model tuggies and all different. That's amazing. Uh, all different stages of restoration, right? He's like the American restoration guy specifically for tuggies. And what I was getting at with the boat earlier is like seeing that my son, Jamie, A, he loves his tuggy. And B, is literally fishing 24-7, like off the couch with rubber sharks and stuff like that. Like, I'm starting to wonder, should I send our tuggy to Nick for restoration? Mm. And Nick, if you're listening, let's talk. I'm really not kidding. Because he's only three, right? So there aren't exactly a lot of personal watercraft options for a three-year-old. I've looked into this, okay? Like, the smallest (laughs) kitty kayak you can buy is still too big for him. Um, But the crazy thing is, like, getting a tuggy to float is not easy. It requires real work because they don't have a bottom. Right? right, And the shell is just thin, hollow plastic that's open yeah. on the bottom. And I've watched a few videos. I don't think these dudes were as skilled as Nick. Um, but if you're serious about floating one, like guys pump them full of foam, you know, like shoot mm-hmm. them up with foam. Mm-hmm. You got to make them watertight. You got to build a bottom. It's legit work. But if ours floated, I'd totally drag it behind <laughs> one of my boats and let the kid bob around <laughs> on the lake or in the bay. You know, tie him off to a little rope, give him his little fish. Like, how badass would it be for him to tell people later, like, I got my first boat at three. You know what I mean? Like, when did you get your first boat? Oh, I was 18. No, three. I had my first boat. And it was perfect for him. So I'm extremely tempted. I I want to just do like I want to do a covering water segment with this guy and and find out like how did he get into tuggy restoration? Where (laughs) I'm I'm betting we can get him. What's the most that anyone's ever paid him for a tuggy? Like, there are so many things. I would love to know, man. Maybe he's interested in, in doing, a, like, if I cover the shipping, do a custom bent tuggy. Oh, man. Your kid running around in a custom bent tuggy? Yeah. That, that the, then, be, all I, then all I have to do is, is build a, a custom trailer for the cozy coop. And the kid's <laughs> off. <laughs> I already, I'm not even kidding. Like, I put rod holders in everything he has. Everything he has, he wants a piece of PVC on for his little ice fishing rod. Yeah. So, no, this is. A I great might explore idea. this. Yeah. I hope this I goes it. somewhere. I really hope that we get some <laughs> follow through on this and it goes somewhere. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. You know, you were talking about DNR officers who who ultimately were doing the right thing and and coming through. Uh, in this case, some DNR officers did some really good work, and and you know, it wasn't a perfect outcome, but I think I think we can give them some credit. So, uh, I'm going to close out my contributions this week with a short one, and and this is sadly another story about fish poachers in the great state of Oregon, which we're going to have to come back to. 31-year-old Tyler Warren was recently sentenced to three years of federal probation and 40 hours of community service for illegally taking bull trout from the Metolius River. He also got a $1,000 fine and a three-year suspension of his fishing license. Warren was not alone. His buddy, 30-year-old Thomas R. Campbell, was right there with him back in December of 2017 when the two harvested an unknown number of bull trout out of the Metolius. These two are clearly not Mensa candidates because the following day, <laughs> Campbell posted photos of himself with what looked like dead bull trout to Instagram, which tipped some people off. Can I interrupt you for one second and yeah. just tell you that if the tuggy hadn't become news, we were crossing over. I really? had this and the tuggy news dropped and I was like, tuggy beats poachers, but this is a good story and the, I, I, the outcome is right up your alley. So, tug, so, tuggy for the win again. Yeah, there you go. I'm glad you're doing it. They post these photos to Instagram and then tip some folks off. So investigators then go in and they seized Campbell's phone where they found just damning evidence. Like there are pictures of mm -hmm. these guys cooking bull trout fillets. There's a, a picture where they're posing with a dead bull trout that they'd stuff and they'd stuffed like a beer can in its mouth. Yep. Yep. Uh, there, there's another photo where they're carrying two bags full of bull trout fillets. It was, it was, it was pretty oh, bad. Yeah. 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 And last year, Campbell was sentenced to five years federal probation, a $6,000 fine, and 300 hours of community service to be served on habitat restoration and conservation projects, which I support. Now, bull trout are listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act, but the Metolius River has a relatively healthy population, and it's one of the few places in the U.S. where anglers are allowed to target them. 
Keeping bull trout, however, is a federal crime. Not to mention, it's just kind of a shitty thing to do, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Go whack some rainbows. Bonk a few browns. I don't care. Bull trout are not in great shape these days. And the thing is, incidents like these, they, they jeopardize what little bull trout fishing opportunities are left in this country. For yeah. example, my state, Montana, we only have one watershed left where you're allowed to fish for bullies. And so I'm not so much pissed about the individual fish. Like, that sucks. Killing those fish sucks. But I'm, I'm more pissed about what this does to the public image of anglers and the potential that incidents like this have to convince management agencies that the public just isn't responsible enough to, to have nice things, like being allowed to fish for bull trout. And they can easily go in and shut that down if it looks like people are going to keep doing idiocy like this. And my final question is like, what's up with fish poaching in Oregon? Like, yeah, just a few weeks ago, we, we ran that story about the group of folks who were stealing steelhead out of ODFW's fish traps. Is this, is this random coincidence or, or is fish poaching a, a rampant problem in Oregon that I don't know well, about? That's what made me think of you because I remember at the end of that story, we were saying like, what's enough punishment for these guys? Like yeah. a million years of community service yeah. that's all based on habitat restoration. So when I read this, I was like, Ooh, like they hit that kid. They went there. You know, 300 hours of community service that has to be done on habitat restoration. Which I appreciate. Yeah. It was it. Because at the end of that story, though, I called out and I said, what do you guys think would be an appropriate punishment to fit this crime? And we got some, we didn't get a ton of responses, but we got a few suggestions. And interestingly, they all, the common denominator was that the violator in question should suffer some kind of public humiliation. That mm-hmm. was what all of you seemed to want the most of, like, like make these people publicly humiliated and have mm-hmm. to own their crime that way. So for whatever it's worth, from here on out, I'm going to make a point of calling these folks out by name whenever I report on fish poaching incidents. I'm not, I'm not saying that our little podcast here is going to act as a significant deterrent for bad behavior, but maybe like maybe one or two people will think twice before doing something stupid to avoid getting called out by us. And to me, that's yeah. enough. That, that, that is success. Well, one thing this story didn't really clarify that I'm curious about, if you look at the charges and the sentencing, Warren got significantly fewer hours, significantly lighter probation, yep. but yet all the damning evidence was pictures of him. Like It seemed like from the story doing the worst stuff. So I figure that dude had the better lawyer and like snitched on the other guys because all the damning photos were of him, yeah. yet the Campbell dude... Got the got the heavier sentence by a lot. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what was going on there, and I also don't understand. I would imagine there's, I don't know, maybe some COVID related stuff. But like you said, they just got sentenced. He just got sentenced very recently. But that's a big gap between December 2017 Mm -hmm. and now. Like I'm not sure why that took so long. But they also pleaded guilty. Yeah. So like they didn't fight this. I mean, how are you going to plead not guilty when there are photos of you holding giant bags of fillets of dead bull trout? You can't be like, no, no. That didn't happen. Like, how are you going to plead not guilty there? Yeah. So, good sentencing. And I agree. Like, let's just, even if it's a short story, let's just keep calling poachers out by name. Get their names out there. Yep. Yep. Totally. We'll see. Again, I don't know that's going to do anything, but that's what we're going to We're going to do that here. That's our little part. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm going to close out with uh, a feel-good story here. I uh, I think we should do that. Uh, And I don't really have a good, I, I don't really have a good tie so I'm not going to try and make one. I'm just going to move along and say this is a feel-good story. Um, but I think it, it may have hit on a premise that could be adopted all over the world. So this comes from thedrum.com, and the story is about a fishing tournament of sorts in Mexico. And this happened on the West Coast in Mazatlan, where, uh, like in all Mexican coastal towns, you have a lot of commercial fishermen. And bear in mind, of course, that when we're talking about commercial fishermen in Mexico, like I'm, I'm not really referring to like a crew on a big trawler, right? We're talking about the thousands of independent guys that go out every day in tiny pongas and rowboats and whatever they can cobble together to try and catch a few fish to sell and feed their families. And uh, we're talking about a group of folks that, I mean, these guys have a pretty hard life, right? These guys yeah. struggle to make a couple bucks a day. At best, and that's due to many factors, you know, making any sort of living this way in the inshore waters of Mexico is just getting tougher and tougher and tougher all the time. And of course, one of those big factors is pollution. So beer giant Corona 
one of my favorite summer beers, they came up with a concept they called plastic fishing. And what they did was they got 80 of these local independent commercial fishermen to compete against each other in a tournament to see who could haul in the most discarded plastic in a single day, all right? And there was a video in the article that documented this whole deal. And Corona went all in. Like, they hyped it up prior. Like, they were, you know, had trucks with the loudspeakers driving around the poor neighborhoods, you know, where these fishermen live and, like, hyping this thing up. And then at the actual event, they set up a stage and had a weigh-in, just like you'd see at at an offshore tournament. Uh, And this was all pretty cool. Now, the winners of the event, right, get this hauled in a whopping 815 pounds of discarded plastic. Here's the cool part, right? Here's the cool part. To incentivize this whole thing, Corona offered to pay the same price per kilo of plastic as the fishermen were getting for a kilo of fish. So that 815 pounds of plastic ended up being worth 14,800 pesos, which is about what these guys would make if they were lucky in a single month of fishing. That's amazing. Right? So you might say, though, what about the other 79 contestants that worked their asses off? Corona roped in Mexico Recicla, the country's largest recycling operation, and all the other contestants sold their haul to them for slightly more, in some cases, than the going rate (laughs) per kilo for fish. So in this case, right, the goal was to show these fishermen that you can actually make money fishing for the plastic that is making it harder for you to catch the fish. Now, right, will there be a long-lasting effect here? Will these guys continue to collect plastic or, or use that as a means to supplement their fishing income? Who knows, right? That's yet to be seen. But I think the whole model here has play everywhere, Like, if you turn something into a competition and it gets people to react, right, and if you can offer real prizes or or money, I think it's possible to change attitudes about some of this kind of work. Like, yes, we all participate in river cleanups here and there, and you you do those things because you care, you want to volunteer your time, but this model could almost make this stuff, like, a lot more fun, I think. Like, people get riled up over a good weigh-in at a tournament, right? You tack Mm -hmm. on a free meal and beer at the end fully adopt the fishing tournament model like Corona did down in Mexico. And I could see this really working. I thought this was extremely cool. And I hope it leads to more tournaments, if you will, like this. I do too. I think a couple points. One, turning something like this into a tournament is, is like you said, it's a fun way to raise awareness. It's a great one-off. It, it, it gets some attention on the topic. But the broader question I have is, can they turn this into a commodity? And by that, I mean mm. you're saying they were able to sell some of this plastic at a premium rate to this recycling company. So apparently, now I'm guessing, yeah, yeah. I'm guessing they could only do that because the recycling company came down or came over, came from wherever sure. they are and was there at the event, so they didn't have to worry about the additional shipping costs. But is there a way to scale this so that people could turn that refuse and the plastic that we want to get out in the oceans into a commodity that's worth their time and effort? That yeah. would be something I'd like to see. Yeah, achieve. and certainly this doesn't touch on that. I mean, it's just covering right, this right, one right. event. But I mean, I think that's sort of what this is hinting at. But you're right. That I don't know. Do these guys have the means when Corona is not calling in, you know, the army trucks from the recycling place to get that stuff to them to sell? But I mean, it certainly opens up the, the door to another way of thinking. Yeah, about it, it makes me think there might be a way to do that. It might. It makes me think that there might be some possibility where if you get the infrastructure right and you get the discarded plastic to the recycling plant and they saw it as valuable, this could be a sustainable model if if someone was able to put that infrastructure in place. I would yes. love to see that that grow. Yes. So you know, if you guys are out there and you you do that kind of infrastructure work, you should think about picking this up. <laughs> well, I am. Uh, I'm so proud of Corona. That's such a nice thing they did. I'm going to go Agreed. buy another case of their beer this summer and enjoy one. We're going to hear from Phil, uh, see who he deems the winner this week. He's got some choices to make. And then um, right after that, we're going to make you even smarter. And Miles is going to do a little freaking Philistines so that you guys read more. You need to read more. All right. You guys are really playing nicely into your roles this week with Miles bringing in the important yet heavy stories about endangered species and the dire state of Florida's Gulf Coast. 
and Joe bringing in a story about a guy literally riding a sandbox across the water. Uh, I can't decide. I can't decide. I know I say this is hard every week, but this week I mean it. And uh, if I've learned anything about my life so far, it's to just uh, run away from your problems if you can't deal with them. So I've taken inspiration from Joe's story and I've uh, fashioned a pontoon out of some empty barrels. What? Most, mostly empty barrels of crude oil. And I've attached this outboard motor here. And uh, you know, I'm just gonna take this week off. I'll see you guys next week. Don't worry, I promise I'll pick a winner. Okay? Have a good one. I'll see you guys. What's a Faustin? It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things. The Lang Faustin. The book selection this week is called Keeper, a memoir written by Martin Donovan who worked as a river keeper on the River Test. If you've ever heard of the River Test, you know it's one of the most renowned of all English chalk streams, which are perhaps the most famously stuffy and elitist fishing spots on the planet. Some regard the test as the birthplace of modern fly fishing, which is to say that a handful of stiff aristocrats wrote books about fly fishing in the late 1800s that featured this river. If you're up on your fishing history, you might have heard of Frederick M. Halford, whose books set the snooty tone that has plagued fly fishing culture for the past ooh, 150 years or so. Halford's books also sparked the British nobility's embrace of fly fishing in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Fishing access in England, and much of Europe, differs from the States and Canada, where most water is held in the public trust. Over there, private ownership extends beyond the banks and beds to the water itself and even the fish swimming in that water. Americans find it difficult to comprehend the gulf that separates nobles from commoners in Britain. I mean, don't get me wrong, wealth disparities in this country create a huge divide between the rich and poor, but the scope of generational privilege that separates the noblesse from the plebeians over there remains at a level we have not yet achieved. We can still fish much of our water, at least, so long as we can afford a license and some basic tackle. Chalk streams are different. They flow past vast estates that sprawl along their banks, and these are usually owned by some noble family or another. The family hires land managers who oversee the homes and the grounds and the river. The land management agency then hires a riverkeeper to maintain the fishery, look after the flora beside and within the stream, and act as host and guide to the various guests that the nobility invites or allows to pay for the privilege of fishing their beat. Riverkeepers are generally blue-collar workers with expansive knowledge of stream ecology, fishing, and social dynamics who also wear calluses on their hands thick enough to work a shovel and a scythe. Though the Upper Crust family technically owns their stretch of river, the place belongs to the riverkeeper. Riverkeepers and their families, if they have them, live full-time in the cottages beside their piece of water. They manicure the walking paths and the swaying clumps of ranunculus weed. They study their beat daily with guests, spotting fish and delicately guiding. They may not own the beat, but they know it more intimately than anyone alive. River keepers often spend their entire careers working one single stretch of water and then pass that stretch on to their children or other family members. The dream of becoming a keeper transfixes many young anglers, but few actually get to realize how bloody difficult a job it is. Martin Donovan is one of the gifted and lucky. In the late 1990s, when he was just 28 years old, he managed to land a job as a riverkeeper on the nursling beat of the River Test, right near his hometown. A decade later, he wrote a memoir that chipped away the veneer obscuring the hallowed but mostly unrecorded profession. This is not a, a scandalous tell-all about how horrid the aristocracy are through the eyes of an everyman hero. It's an honest and often self-deprecating book that catalogs his love affair with a river he would otherwise never have been allowed to fish, the mentors that helped get him his opportunity, and a tiny little swath of the myriad, strange, awful, and wonderful characters with whom he interacted. There are no villains, per se, and if there is a hero, it's the river itself. I'm going to give you a couple of samples. First, from a chapter where he's trying to find a riverkeeper job and failing. 
My first real chance at a keeper's job was in 1997. As you can imagine, having waited so long, I was very excited about the possibility. I had one or two very friendly interviews and a tour of the river with the head keeper, Bernard Aldrich. He told me that there had been nearly 80 applicants who had been whittled down to a remaining three, who then had to face a final interview with the land agents. In basic terms, land agents act as the grossly overpaid link between the wealthy estate owners and the common man who works their land. On matters of personnel and estate management, they bridge the gap between those two disparate classes of people, thereby cutting out the necessity of awkward direct communication between his lordship and the riverkeeper. I found myself in front of three rather dour-looking men. None of them made eye contact, and my deliberately fixed and confident smile was therefore wasted. As I settled uneasily into the chair, there was no smiling or welcoming, just a straight, cold stare which seemed to pass right through me. They introduced themselves, but at such speed that I didn't catch any of their names. I was nervous, but I felt prepared for the interview and was ready for anything they threw at me. The middle one cleared his throat and prepared to fire off his first question. What action would you take if one of your paying rods, let us say a wealthy, well-to-do lady, had a little too much to drink and told you to f*** off? Unfortunately, it was a question I hadn't given much thought to, and I remember thinking that perhaps reading up on the history of the Mountbatten family may have been a waste of time. As the sweat prickled onto my forehead, I wrongly thought that maybe this was the time to give an amusing answer. <clears throat> well... If she had already given me my tip, then I probably would just f*** off. I can't be sure, but I think the one on the right briefly smiled. The other two glanced down at their paperwork with lifeless scowls to remind themselves of my name so they could quite deliberately put a long pencil line right through it when the interview ended. The second passage recounts Martin's first experience fishing the beat that would later become his home and his first interaction with the man who would become his primary mentor and whom he would eventually replace. During my mischievous youth, nursling was considered out of bounds and the wrong side of the water meadows for us testwood nippers. Although it was only a half mile or so away, we only ventured over once. We came over with our rods and bread and started fishing on a little stretch of water we knew to be private. Fishing on new waters was very exciting, and although we didn't catch anything, we had great fun exploring different parts of the river. After a couple hours of fruitless casting, we saw a stranger walking down the banks toward us, and we laid flat on the ground, probably thinking that if we couldn't see him, he wouldn't see us. Unfortunately, his eyesight was better than we had hoped, and while giving us a telling off, he reeled in both our lines and told us we were in big trouble. We stood there apologizing and hoping to God he wouldn't tell our dads. The stranger told us that we'd have to walk up Mill Lane and see the riverkeeper, who would decide our punishment. It seems quite incredible in this day and age that we actually did walk up to see the keeper, but we were too scared not to. Nowadays, if I catch any nippers fishing on the river, they usually tell me to bugger off, or they'll call their dads. When we got to the keeper's cottage, he was outside saying goodbye to a couple of fishermen, so we stood in silence, heads bowed nervously waiting to admit to him that we'd been fishing on his river. As the fisherman drove away, he turned toward us, and I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand straight up in fright. Before either of us had a chance to speak, he asked us if we had caught anything, and then he told us to make sure we didn't fish on his stretch of river again, or, more importantly, didn't get caught fishing on his stretch of river again. With that, he said goodbye and disappeared to the house, waving as he walked through the door. We stood there for a couple of minutes, looking at each other, not quite knowing what to do. Then the door of the fishing cottage opened again, and his head popped out and asked if there was anything else we wanted. My mate held up his flask and asked if we could have some water. The keeper came back to the gate, took our flask, and disappeared into the house again. A few minutes later, he returned with the flask and said that he hoped the water was okay because it tasted a little different down Mill Lane and perhaps we should try it before we left. We thanked him and said it would be fine and that we really should be getting home. At the bottom of Mill Lane, we stopped and opened the flask, which he had filled with beautiful, cold, orange juice. 
I can remember standing there many years ago, drinking orange juice and thinking what a kind thing to do and what a lovely man. That was my first encounter with my second riverkeeping guru, the legendary Vic Foote. I've said it before, man. I'm fascinated by British fishing culture, but usually not the Tweedy chalk stream kind. I've just, I, I don't know. I've never had, I never wanted to do it that way. You know yeah. what I mean? It never seemed to like grab me to fly over there and, and try that. Um, like, I want to know more about like baiting roach, carp, and chub swims, not, you know, Lord and Lady Sea Trout. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. But as I said, this book fascinates me because it splits the worlds. Yeah. It's yeah. it's this window into the blue collar work that keeps all those lord and ladyships in fish. Yeah. Which I can kind of resonate with. It's not the same as as the guiding culture over here, which is part of why it was interesting. And I actually hadn't thought about that book for the better part of a decade and we started working on this Philistines bit and and then I I found it as I was looking through my bookshelf and picked it out and I'd forgotten how enjoyable it was. And I think yeah. it's because it bridges that sort of cultural gap in a way that that you can relate to and you're also kind of laughing at those lords and ladies, but you kind of yeah. you turn out liking some of them. You yeah. you get it a little more. Well, it's strange that it actually works because I actually did I did something similar for this week's end of the line. I've actually been thinking about covering a particular spoon that is like seared into my childhood memory, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. seems to have completely disappeared from fishing's historical record. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. This end of the line, I gotta tell you, it's it's really, it's like a cry for help, okay? Because I don't have all the information. I'm seeking the information from you in a desperate attempt to prove that I'm not crazy, we aren't living in the Matrix, And I've not uncovered like a dark conspiracy. It all starts with the Acme Tackle Company, which all of you are familiar with, whether you know it or not. Art Lavalie founded Acme in 1952, just three years after he and his brother formed a jewelry polishing and electroplating company. Lavalie took some of the jewelry and bent the shapes to create metal fishing lures. Acme's big break, however, came when Lavalie struck a royalty deal with a company called Engineering Design Associates. EDA was making a lure, and Lavalie wanted to handle marketing it. He tweaked the design slightly and then gave it a jewelry-caliber polish, which hadn't been seen on other metal lures of the day, and the Castmaster was born. Acme went on to develop some of the most popular metal lures ever, including the Phoebe, the Sidewinder, and of course the Little Cleo, which is so damn popular, it even has its own Wikipedia page. All of those lures are still in production today made at Acme's facility in Rhode Island. And while I've used all of them my entire life, my fondest memories are of the Acme lore that seems to be an anomaly, or maybe like a glitch in that matrix. When I was a little kid, my family rented a house every summer in Long Beach Island, New Jersey, and I'd spend hours and hours sitting on the 13th Street bulkhead, fishing for little snapper bluefish in Barnegat Bay. Now, my grandmother, who used to vacation with us, owned a bait and tackle shop, and the lure she'd recommend that I cast every summer for those blues, was her number one best-selling snapper lure in her shop, the Acme Hippie. The Hippie was only about two inches long, made of thin chrome and kind of bean-shaped. It didn't have much taper, and it was just sort of rounded off at each end like a Band-Aid. As a young, impressionable kid that didn't know any better, I assumed everyone at the Jersey Shore casting for snapper blues was throwing a Hippie. Bolstering this notion was that, to the best of my recollection, Every divey little tackle shop and dime store at the Jersey Shore had a card of hippies somewhere near the register, and every summer my grandma would buy me a couple new ones early in the vacation. As years passed, and I became more proficient in angling, I drifted away from the tiny metal hippie, realizing that Hopkins or Castmasters or Crocodile Spoons were really all just as effective. Matter of fact, I hadn't given the old hippie another thought for 30-some-odd years until I ended up on a podcast that required me to talk about old lures, and I went a-searching. What I essentially found, though, was nothing. It almost appears that the Acme hippie never was. Now, I know that's not true, because I used the damn things for years, and my daddy used them before me, but after searching for it a bunch of different ways, I found only two pieces of internet evidence that prove the hippie existed. 
The first was on an ancient fly-by-night tackle website still listing Acme's 1990s-era snapper blue kit. It was, of course, sold out. But there, in the pixelated thumbnail of the product, is the hippie. The other hit took me to a Russian tackle site. But when I got there, the photo of the hippie I clicked to get me there was nowhere to be found. Try as I might, I could uncover no history of the hippie. I didn't get a single hit from a single message board thread discussing it in 1998. Nothing. So how could something so widely available for so many years of my life just vanish into the ether? I have one theory, aside from the theory that the Russians are somehow involved. Could it be that the hippie had too offensive of a name, forcing Acme to rub it out permanently as the world got more PC? Don't scoff at that, because when Andrew Grillos's potent dry fly, the hippie stomper, was picked up by Orvis, they thought changing the name to the hollow humpy was a smarter move. In reality, I'd guess the Acme Hippie simply wasn't popular enough in markets outside kids chasing snapper blues in Jersey to run with bangers like the Phoebe and Cleo, and it was just sort of phased out. But considering there are forums and threads and fake news about everything on the planet on the internet, the lack of Hippie content and reference is, is startling. So please, if you grew up fishing the Hippie, let me know. Help me figure out whether this was reality or just some weird dream I had, because I know the truth it's out there. That's all we have in this week's Stroll Down Nostalgia Lane. But for those of you who did irreversible harm to your short-term memory in your younger years, here are a few things that were never good ideas. I do not recommend using worm blowers for facial piercings. <laughs> Brad Leone does not recommend sticking your digits in a bluefish face. Martin Donovan does not recommend partying with British land managers. And Joe does recommend that you help him solve the mystery of what happened to the hippie spoon. Please, I'm going nuts here, okay? <laughs> I also recommend that you send more awkward photos, bar nominations, salesman items, fish news stories, and lightly used facial jewelry to bent at the Drop the hashtags Degenerate Angler and Bent Podcast for the chance to win sweet sticker art. Yeah, and don't forget to check out Nick E's Bent vs. Bridging playlist on Spotify and let us know who wore the 90s better. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.